Why, hello there. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so thankful for your presence. This is Jonathan Edwards, and this is the Pure and Simple Bible Podcast. I'm grateful again. I mean, I say that all the time, but it's so it's just so true. I'm grateful to have this opportunity to study the Bible, and I'm thankful that you're listening. These conversations are very helpful for me. You know, sometimes I take the notes that someone has given and I jot them down in my Bible. Sometimes uh, I might use some of the notes in some of my own sermons, so confession time, but I'll take some of the notes that we have and use them later on, and maybe you do the same. I hope that these are helpful conversations for you. Now, we're still in a conversation called Sour Grapes with my dad, Doug Edwards, and it's been a really good conversation so far. I think you're really going to enjoy the second part of it as well. It's a great Bible study from Ezekiel chapter 18. So let's all jump right back into it, shall we? Well, let's see. If I was to review where we've come so far, we're talking about sour grapes, but specifically that the children of Israel who were in captivity, the the children of Judah, rather, who are in captivity, were quoting a proverb that said, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And uh, the takeaway from this proverb was that they were trying to avoid taking ownership of their own lives and their own sinful behavior. And so uh, what we've just been talking about, for our listeners' sake, maybe it's been a, an episode or so or a week or so since you've tuned in, we've been talking about the underlying principles behind God needing to correct this behavior, or the, correct this proverb, rather, and that is a couple of behaviors that they needed to um, change mentally. First, they needed to consider their personal responsibility. So that's what we've been talking about how, uh, yes, we can inherit the consequences of another's sin. That is that they can sin and the actions do have a effect on us, but that doesn't mean we inherit the guilt of another person's sin. There's a lot of misunderstanding about that, and hopefully we helped clear some of that up. What we're going to talk about now for a time um, is the doctrine of free will. So, Dad, if we could look back at uh, Ezekiel chapter 18, and I believe we're going to be looking at the latter part, um, starting verse 21. What's What do we find uh, in this second section? Maybe maybe you could help us uh, understand what God needs us to understand. This section of Scripture does deal with the idea, the concept of the doctrine of free will. And like you mentioned, it's the last part of the chapter. It begins in verse 21 and goes down through verse 32. And I want to begin talking about this a little bit by backing up some. Okay. And talking about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You know, so many things tie back to that. So much is learned from what happened in the Garden of Eden. Right. When God created Adam and Eve, he blessed them in a, a variety of ways. He gave them a paradise to live in. He visited them during the cool of the day. And he met all of their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. But there was one extra blessing that he gave them and that's free will Mm -hmm. he gave them the freedom to choose they were not created as uh, robots programmed to think and act in only way their service and their love to god had to come from the heart 
and being coerced to act in only one way was not free will. God could have made man to worship him and in a sense forced man to worship him and made that man's nature to only worship him and do nothing else. But that would not have been in accordance with free will. Right. So this blessing of free will was given to all of mankind and we still have it today. People still possess it. So the second great doctrine that's taught in Ezekiel 18 deals with the doctrine of free will. Man is not locked in to a certain way of life. He can change. A wicked man can change his life from sin. Now, the writer of, of uh, Ezekiel mentions that in verse 21. He says, but if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, keeps my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he committed shall be remembered against him, because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn away from his ways and live? Mm-hmm. You know, sin is not some inescapable condition that you find yourself in. Change is not impossible. A person can determine to do God's will. He can determine to do right and leave his old life of sin. You know, we learned that even at the beginning of the Christian age on the day of Pentecost. Thousands of people heard the gospel. And out of those thousands, there were several that were pricked in their hearts. And when they asked what to do, they were told to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. And none of your sins then are remembered against you. They're all gone. They're all forgotten. They're all cleansed. Micah would say in chapter 7, 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion upon us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Dad, let me, let me pause you for a second and, and maybe ask this question. So we've already touched on one uh, set of beliefs that a Calvinist would have, specifically about being born in sin. But when I hear you talk about having free will and that we have within us the ability to choose to turn to God, that also flies in the face of uh, Calvinistic doctrine that, you know, it is not from us to turn to God, but God through his spirit is able to uh, regenerate and rejuvenate our heart. So maybe uh, could you just, if a Calvinist heard you say these things and then, you know, they responded with that, well, you, Doug, are, are telling me that, that I can work out, you know, I, I can work towards my salvation and that if it's possible for me to choose to do good, then I, you know, wouldn't need God because I could just do it all myself. What would you say to maybe explain to this person more accurately the word? Well, first of all, I would not say that you're doing it yourself. You know, none of us believe that we save ourselves. Right. You know, we we are saved by grace through faith. The Bible teaches us in Ephesians chapter two. And we understand then that man does not pick himself up by his own bootstraps and save himself by his own good deeds, his own good works, by his own faithfulness. And at the same time, though, there is an 
element or role that man does play in his salvation. When we right. talk about grace, grace is the unmerited favor of God, but grace is something that, that we have to accept. Mm-hmm. It's not given to everybody unconditionally so that every person in the world is automatically saved. Right. There's a human response that's involved there. Now, strict Calvinism, the, you know, the conservative old-style Calvinism believed in irresistible grace, which was the point that man could do nothing. And in order to be saved, then he had to have some help. And that involved what is called the irresistible uh, grace of, uh, involving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in a miraculous way, I suppose, uh, apart from you, would be able to take the role and help you to be saved from right. your sins. Right. And all. And so there was nothing you did. The Holy Spirit did it all for you. Of course, you were one of the elect. And so it was going to work out that way. There wasn't any free will involved at all in that. You were automatically decreed to be saved. So you didn't have a choice in that. And so then the spirit under Calvinism would purposely work to save you because you were a part of the elect. Well, let's see if I can weave it back into the notes here. Um, With God not taking pleasure in the death of the wicked, it would seem that if it's beyond our control that we can't control being saved or being lost, that ultimately it would be at God's pleasure whether one is saved and lost. Whereas in Ezekiel chapter 18, he is urging repentance because he doesn't take pleasure in it. I love how that says it in, uh, oh, what verse did we read? Verse 20, 23. Verse 23 is a rhetorical question. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? And then down in verse 32, it's just as a statement, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Um, So when I look at the Bible, I see that God doesn't take pleasure in people being lost. But you make a point uh, that according to a perspective, and I don't like the name that you're about to reference as far as Mm -hmm. the preacher, but there was a preacher at one time that his sermon indicated it was as though God did take pleasure in those who were going to be lost. Yeah, one of the, the most uh, famous American preachers in times past was a Puritan preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Not me. <laughs> and I will throw out to our audience that you, Jonathan Edwards, was not named after this Jonathan <laughs> Edwards. It's just kind of a coincidence, right. names and all. But Uh, Jonathan Edwards preached a a very famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And really what's interesting about that sermon is it's found in many of our English literature textbooks when it deals with American literature. I read it in high school. I I taught it in high school. Oh, really? Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, yes. And in that particular excerpt that they usually use in in, uh, your grammar schools, it, it... indicates that uh, Jonathan Edwards points out that man is like a spider on a web dangerously dangling over an open fire. And right. the, the implication is is that God's just ready to flick that man <laughs> into hell at any second. He's also portrayed as a dam that's overflowing and is just about to burst. And he also portrays man as or uh, God is a person with a bow and arrow, with the arrow pulled back and aimed and ready to shoot it at just any second. So these and, three these three analogies or examples 
show a God that's a little bit counter to what Ezekiel 18 shows. Mm-hmm. And there's other scriptures that go along with Ezekiel 18 that are counter to this perspective, right? That's not the only scripture that talks about how the, that God does love his creation and God does not delight in evil. Second Peter 3 verse 9, Peter said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Mm-hmm. And, and this is all because free will. He, he wants you to come to repentance based on your free will. He right. wants you to come willingly. He's not going to make you come. Yeah. He's not going to force you to come. But he wants you to come freely and lovingly to him. I've heard an, or I've read an article by a Calvinist that tried to explain that verse in Second Peter uh, from the perspective of uh, unconditional election. It was garbage. It was, you know, you can't. You can't explain that verse, but then turn around and say that God elects certain people and then uh, doesn't elect others and that free will has nothing to do mm-hmm. with it. And that's probably the best passage in the New Testament for it. Well, I can understand the argument that they make sometimes, not necessarily that I believe in it, but I see the direction they're going. These passages that talk about the love of God and not wanting anybody to perish would be said in reference to the elect. Mm -hmm. You know, not all mankind, but the elect. It is the elect, according to this view, that will come to perish, that will come to repentance. They're the ones that the spirit will work upon and they will come to repentance. And so that's one way of trying to get around the verse instead of just accepting it as it indicates that anyone, whosoever will, can come to salvation, the Bible indicates. Well, I know we're going to talk about that in just a moment, about the the argument about what would you do to your son or daughter. But before we get there, um, maybe you could walk us through a couple verses back in Ezekiel 18, verse 24 and 25, uh, where it's really making the case for the doctrine of free will. Okay. Verse 24 says, but when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness which he is uh, guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them he shall die. Now, a righteous man, the Bible says, may turn from his righteousness. Right. That's because we have free will. A sinner has free will. He can turn from his sins. A righteous man also has free will, and he can turn away from his righteousness and become a sinner. He can die in his sins. The reason for that is because people have free will. Why do Christians fall away? It's because they choose to do so. They, they exercise this option of free will and choose the path they want to go. And sometimes that leads them away from God. Well, you know, somebody might hear that, especially if they have been raised in a, a religious background that believed that once you were saved, you, you could always be saved. They might hear that and feel that that doesn't seem fair, that God's grace is being cheapened mm-hmm. by such a belief. So what would you say or what would the, this passage in Ezekiel 18 say to that? Well, first of all, I would answer that anytime someone says that doesn't sound fair, we're making the argument on our level. We're bringing things down to our standard. And to try to compare how God sees things yeah. with the way that we see things 
Sometimes there's a long distance between the two, a lot of difference between the two. We have to allow God to be God and allow us to be us. But, you know, we tell our kids a lot of times, you know, life's not fair. I remember little kids, little kids, <laughs> you know, something happens and we'll go, but that's not fair. And you want to say, well, get ready for it because life's not fair. Right. And that argument sometimes made about God, especially with this verse that we've just read. The righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and lives that life of iniquity. And if he is lost because of that, again, the argument made is made. Well, that's not fair. Yeah. What about what about all the righteous things he did before then? And then he walked away from God, turned his heart away from God and exercised his right to free, uh, you know, free choice, freedom of choice. Right. Well, the point is that he is living a life of sin. He is living a life away from God. Yeah. And even though he may have lived righteously, then he still has forfeited that, really. Right. Because he has chosen a different path in life. Same thing is true in an opposite way. And we'll read that perhaps in some of the other verses that when when a wicked man lives a life of wickedness for a long time and then turns to God and repents and becomes righteous, all his wickedness is forgotten. You know, it, it that wickedness doesn't matter yeah. because he's become righteous. What is right in one case is right also in the other case. And it all depends upon where man is at the time. If man is away from God, then he's in unrighteousness. And if man is with God, he's righteous. Jesus even taught a parable on that of workers who are called at the beginning of the day, the midday, and at the end of the day. And the ones at the beginning of the day grumbled whenever the ones at the end of the day received the same reward. They thought, hey, we served him longer. We'll get a bigger, yeah. bigger reward. But he was emphasizing that the reward is the same, you know, mm -hmm. for anybody who comes, mm -hmm. no matter what hour. Mm -hmm. Well, Dan, uh, we just mentioned it, so maybe we're going to kind of go back to it a little bit. But uh, the the fifth point of Calvinism specifically is called perseverance of the saints. We commonly call it once saved, always saved. And this is probably one of the more embraced doctrines in the denominational community. Um, so here's the argument that, that some might make, and I, I thought maybe you might continue to make it and then... Uh, flesh it out some more, and then and then answer it from the Scriptures. But uh, once a person is a Christian, they're a son of God, and you never stop being a son, or you'll never stop being a daughter in the same way that it might work in a family. You, you, you know, once a child, always a child. What would you say to that? Okay. Uh, once you are a physical child, you're always a child. That point being made. Once you're a son, you're always a son. Once you're a daughter, you're always a daughter. You will, uh, you could possibly with your own children disown them. You could refuse to speak to them. You could have nothing to do with them. Right. But that person is still your child. It's still your son. Yeah. Yeah. She's still your daughter. The argument is going, as, as you mentioned, that, well, that's also true spiritually. So we're told we are children of God, no matter what we may do. God may punish us for our sins, but God will never cast us away eternally, even if we live a life of sin. It seems to me that this argument is not taking into the account free will, which is what we've just been talking about. Yeah. It's almost like saying, well, you can have free will before you're a Christian, but you can't have free will <laughs> right. after you're a Christian. Right. 
You can choose to leave sin before you're a Christian. You can choose to come to God before you're a Christian. But once you become a Christian, you no longer have free will. Right. You can't choose. You can no longer choose to quit believing in God. Well, the scriptures even warn us about the dangers of departing from God. In Hebrews 3, verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, one thing, notice that's addressed to brethren. Right. And he says to brethren, there is in you an evil heart of unbelief. You can reach the point to where you are controlled by unbelief. Now, the question, I guess, that comes back is when a person leaves the Lord and enters into the realm of unbelief, are unbelievers saved? Mm-hmm. And on this, this individual actually has departed from the living God. Yeah. Where do you go when you depart from the living God? Likewise, Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. You who are tempted to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, if grace saves and we're saved by grace and you're fallen from grace, then where have you fallen to? Where are you at spiritually? Well, maybe I could ask this question. Maybe there's somebody out there that's thinking, yeah, but what if I live my whole life, you know, for the Lord? And it just doesn't seem fair that you, you, you give so much and then at the very end you, you know, abandon the Lord. And I lived 85 years for the Lord and only two years for myself. And that 85 years is wasted. That doesn't seem fair. Um, I know we've talked a little bit about fairness already, but. You have in your notes uh, an answer to that based out of Ezekiel 18. Yeah. Well, there are those who object to what we've been talking about, and they make the argument, uh, again, that it's just not fair. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, After the righteous man turns away from uh, wickedness, after the righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and even though he's been righteous for years and years and years and then lives a life of, of iniquity, a life of wickedness, God says that he shall die in his sins. Well, verse 25 says, yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? So we have to be careful with God. We always have to understand that God is fair and we're not always fair. And what we believe is fair may not always be what God says that is fair. It is not fair, they will argue, that for a person to serve God a long time and then die and die in his sins and be lost. And yet again, the point is made is God's way is, is fair. We have to be careful when we make arguments based upon our perception of fairness. Right. We have right. to be careful not to try to reinvent God in our own image. And that's exactly what we're doing. Remember, God said that my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Mm -hmm. And so be careful of the argument fair. It's not fair. It doesn't seem to me that this is fair. Yeah. God said it's fair. And so I'm willing to accept it. I tell you what, I'm so thankful that I'm not the judge. I think I've said that on my podcast several times now, so maybe people are tired of hearing it. But God's going to judge rightly. And his fairness is something that I could never live up to. And if I was in charge of that, then I might try to make an exception for somebody that I loved or for a friend, you know, and then suddenly sin is being led into heaven and it corrupts heaven the way that 
uh, earth has been corrupted. So thank God that he judges impartially and justly and that it's not up to us. So, yeah. Um, the, let's continue on maybe. Look at verse 26. What do we see there? Okay, in verse 26, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Now, you may be faithful for a long time and then fall away from the Lord and you die spiritually. But he's making the point, it's not that long life that you're dying for. It's that time of wickedness yeah. that you're dying for. Yeah. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness, which he committed, and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. Because he considers and turns from all his transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Now, in, in verse 29, the same point is repeated again about fairness and unfairness. And again, the argument is made, yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is not my ways which are, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? Yeah. So he repeats the point again because he has to. Yeah. Because it seems like they didn't learn a lesson the first time. So he repeats the truth again. In matters of fairness, God is fair. We're not always fair. Well, they, I can only imagine these people who they found comfort in a false proverb, in a cliche that sour grapes that the father eats are setting the children's teeth on edge. It probably was not giving them the comfort that they were hoping that it was giving him, but it was an excuse that they were willing to make so that they wouldn't be accountable for their own actions. And uh, when I look through this chapter, just to sum up uh, what I've taken away from it, is I see God... Uh, responding to this false proverb and trying to show his children the value of personal responsibility and the value of free will. It's such a valuable chapter. Do you have any closing thoughts from this before we wrap it up? Well, I just think what you said is, is good, that these folks are deceived by themselves, which is generally the way things happen. People are self-deceived. And they're not looking at their own lives and realizing that we're in this mess because of our own sins. Mm -hmm. Because the Bible does teach that even though God during the time of Manasseh had said that the children of Israel were going into captivity, he postponed that for a while because of the righteousness of King Josiah and others as well. And so when the children of Israel went into Babylonian captivity, that generation that went, went because of their own wrongdoing. Right. You know, they did not continue right. the faithfulness. They would have been spared if mm -hmm. they had been faithful. Mm -hmm. And so you have a group of people that have deceived themselves now, and here they are languishing in captivity and looking around and trying to find fault. So they come up with this little cliche, or they remember this little cliche that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. On edge. And they say, aha, that's the answer to our condition right here. It's not our fault. It's the fault of our parents. We are suffering unjustly here. Yeah. We, God, God is blaming us for the guilt of the fathers. He's assigned the guilt of the fathers to us. That's the reason why we're in this mess. It's not, not our fault. And then in doing so, 
as God replies to that and points out that this cliche you're using is just not right. You're using it incorrectly. And then he, he discusses that, he answers that cliche through those two great doctrines that uh, we are responsible for our sins, just like that generation of Jews in Babylonian captivity was responsible for their own sins and their own deeds. So we are responsible for our actions. But not only that, they need to be reminded, as we do as well, that we are creatures of free will. Mm -hmm. And we choose the path we want. When, mm -hmm. when we fall away from God, we can't blame anybody but ourselves. We like to blame others. We like to think that others are the ones that may have caused us to fall. But in the final analysis, we're a creature of free will. And so we chose willingly that path away from God. The uh, children of Israel had done that as well. He's reminding them that also. Now they will argue, oh, this is not fair. God's way is not fair. So he reminds them again, maybe it's your way of thinking that's not fair. Right. But my ways are fair. You know, Dad, human nature often stays the same. Lessons often are not learned. Because in Luke chapter 13, when Jesus tells he's preaching a gospel of repentance and the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and you know what the people do? They say, well, what about those people who Pilate, mm -hmm. you know, mingled their blood with the sacrifices? What about those people that the Tower of Siloam fell on? And Jesus' answer is just like God's. He says, but I tell you, unless you repent, that's right. you will perish. And that's that same lesson for the, the Jewish people of Ezekiel's day. You yeah. know, stop saying it was your fathers who ate the sour grapes and repent. Repent yeah. of your actions, not of theirs. So uh, that's the takeaway for me is and that's a that's a powerful message for the world we live in today. Yeah. We we are responsible for our actions. Don't go blaming others. In fact, the way that the story ends in Ezekiel 18 is, is that God ends that chapter by just telling them that you need to repent. Yeah. He says in verse 30, therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God, repent. And turn away from your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. That's, mm -hmm. that's a message for us today as mm -hmm. well. Turn and live. Well, thank you very much for coming in the studio with me. I'm very grateful, thankful, and I love you very much. I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk with you about it. Well, Jonathan, it's been a real pleasure. I enjoyed it as well. I'm thankful to be able to spend time with you. And, of course, I love you as well, all my family also. That was good. I was very thankful that Dad was willing to come into the studio. And uh, what a good conversation. I hope you were edified from Ezekiel 18. I certainly was. And I was really proud of getting to have that opportunity with dad so it's kind of a personal highlight for me i'm glad he got to be with me and uh getting to share these conversations especially across episode 100 and 101 now for the next 100 episodes i don't know if i'm going to do this every time or not but we'll see if it sticks but uh i want to give a shout out to a listener and uh, so this week i want to give a shout out to bryce whitaker Bryce is a young man who currently lives out in California and at the time of this recording. 
And he's been very positive about the podcast, has messaged me several times about it. We've had the opportunity to meet and uh, be together several times at gospel meetings. And so, Bryce, thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your present and future in the church. And uh, if you ever have any suggestions for the show, just keep sending me messages. So love you, brother, and grateful for what you do and who you are. So to others who are writing in and sending me emails or texting me or just getting a hold of me and talking about the show and how they like it, watch out because I might give you a shout out as well. And uh, anyway, I hope it's helpful and I hope it's encouraging because it does encourage me whenever people reach out and give good feedback to the podcast. So if you haven't done it yet, go over to Apple Podcast or Spotify or SoundCloud and leave a five-star review. Let people know that you like the show. It's not just to stroke my ego. I promise you that. Rather, it's helpful for analytics so that when more people like the show and they comment on the show, others who are searching for a Bible-based program, the podcast will be suggested to them by the podcast itself, the, the, the app that they're using. So anyway, I hope that you'll give it a good five-star review and uh, comment about it. That way other people can hear it. And I'm thankful again to have this opportunity to talk with Dad and have you listen to this conversation from the Bible. So until next week, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember, God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.